Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Okay, our lovers, we've got an art world horror story for you today. New segment. As you may recall, in October, we started the art world horror story segment as a celebration of our love for ghosts and ghouls and long legged beasties in the Halloween season, things that go bump in the night. But, you know, art world horror stories do not stop in October. You know, artists suffer horrific experiences year round. And so our role of horror stories will continue to be a segment that we will share with you as new stories come in. Now, today's story is actually a story that's inspired this whole segment. Our dear friend, an amazing artist and one and only Logan Hicks sat down with me to talk about his recent horror story with Station 16 out of Canada. And, you know, got ugly. We're talking, you know, damaged artworks and lots of lost money and different things and a lot of finger pointing. And and it's, you know, these things happen, right? These things happen when you're in the art business. And sometimes it can get ugly. Sometimes lawyers can get involved. Sometimes lawsuits can happen. Now, Logan is thrilled and happy to let you know, let everyone know that the dispute has been resolved. The parties have come to terms. So that's good. But he sat down with us to tell us a story and we can share this with you now, now that the lawsuit has been settled. So without further ado, I want to get into this interview right now because uh, it is epic. And, you know, of course, nobody's nicer than Logan, such a sweetheart of a guy, brilliant artist. So I'm really grateful that he just sat down with me, was so generous with his time to share the story so that you guys can learn from from his experience and kind of passing it forward, paying it forward. So to spread these uh, these stories so that people can learn and be uh, be better for them, be wiser and avoid these kind of mishaps. But mishaps are going to happen. I mean, you know, that's why they're called mishaps or accidents or whatever. Although I think the story, you know, kind of illustrates potentially some of the uh, negligence that can lead to bad outcomes. But All's well that ends well. Thankfully, Logan and Station 16 were able to settle their dispute. 
And as a result of that, we can share Logan's story with you here today. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear Logan Hicks, Art World Horror Story. Our darkness falls as chills abound. Just when you felt all safe and sound, his heart is losing their bloody minds as their hard work turns on evil eyes. Tis worse than nightmares, tis worse than fears, as artists cry horrific tears. Welcome to Art World Horror Stories. <laughs> Logan Hicks, welcome to the podcast. Please tell us your art world horror story. Well, thank you for having me. As it turns out, I actually have two horror stories, and both of them I am in the middle of. So the, the first one I'll say is, uh, if you remember a couple years ago, there was this horrible meme going around of Salt Bay, a guy that was sprinkling salt on his forearm and letting it fall onto a steak. And after that, he opened a number of high-end steakhouses, New York, Miami, uh, you know, Texas, Beverly Hills, and so on, all around the world. And at one point, me and my friend Joe Irado got commissioned to do a, an original painting for a location in Miami, location in Doha, and a location in New York. And we did that. You know, pay was decent. Then we didn't hear anything from them, but we kept seeing them open up more stores. We looked online. And we're like, wait, that's our art. And they were using the pattern that I had created and the graphic that Joe had created, and we're using it everywhere. So... You know, I approached my lawyer, said, hey, you know, they're using this illegally. He sent them a cease and desist. They ignored it and then opened up even more restaurants. Um, also started a spice line and used our art our, our on it. And so this has been ongoing for about two years. Uh, we have gone back and forth. I'm not sure what the specific numbers are in terms of what's been offered, what's been discussed, but it could go on for another two months. It could go on for another two years. But that's one of the, the problems that you have when you're dealing with big, giant corporations like that or multi, multi-international corporations on top of that. And so that's my first one. And then the second one is one that, that I am literally in the thick of as we speak, but it started several years ago. In 2017, I believe, I got a piece of artwork back from uh, Station 16, which is located in Montreal, Canada. And when I got it back, I unrolled the, the canvas and I noticed that like, I was like, why is there a black border around my piece? And I looked at it closer and they put gaff tape on the actual surface of my artwork. Only about a, about a half inch in, but like they, they cropped the image with gaff tape. And I lost my shit, but I managed, you know, because it was, it was fairly new, I managed to pull it off with relatively little flaking. Um, I did sell it to a collector at a discounted price just to make sure. And I talked to them the next day and kind of gave them, uh, you know, an earful. And I said, look, you know, from here on out, I need signed consignment forms before anything leaves my studio. I need to have an agreement with you. And, yeah, sure. Of course. No problem. There's a, a guy by the name of Adam who's the owner of it. You know, I hadn't sent him any new work in a while. And finally, uh, you know, I had some stuff sent back and I put it back in storage and then. Last year, I pulled out a, a big, giant, four-foot by six-foot painting. I noticed they'd also put gaff tape on that. And this time, because I didn't catch it immediately, when I started taking off the gaff tape, it ripped the canvas, and it also pulled out huge chunks of paint to where it couldn't be salvaged. What I speculate is, 
because they're up in Canada, they're using the metric system. We use the imperial system. So I'm willing to bet that they just didn't feel like having custom stretchers made. And they put it on the nearest stretcher that they could, which was too small. And when they put it on the stretcher that was too small, part of the painting falls over the side of the, the stretcher. And they don't want their collectors seeing artwork that's hanging off the side of the stretcher. So they just put black gaff tape to cover it up. So that was two pieces that, that they destroyed. And so after I saw the second one, I go, you know what? Just send me all of my shit back. We're done. And I, I wanted to see what it was like before I made any proclamations. And so they sent me the work back. Two of the pieces are in like plastic sleeves. I take a look and there's a big giant indent in the paper. As though if you were to take your nail and drag it across the paper, you know, it leaves like a giant crease. And it's on the exact same place on both of the, the pieces of paper. So clearly they were sitting on top of each other. Something hit it, dragged it, destroyed it. So unsellable. And then two other pieces were frames. And I thought it was weird because frames cost a lot of money. The paper size that I had was a standard size. They could have reused that, that frame again. And so I was like, you know, something's up. So I took the frame apart. Sure enough, like the, the paper that I used was an Arches 88, which has a deckled edge, which is kind of like a frayed edge. It has some thin bits and stuff like that. And when they adhered the paper to the mat, they used tape along the entire edge of it, which you're not supposed to do because take the tape off, tears the deckled edge. On top of that, they used tape that they shouldn't have used. So it ripped the paper. And so did that with both of them. And uh, those two pieces are destroyed. So total, it was about $30,000, $35,000 worth of work that they destroyed. Called them up, said, hey, it's kind of fucked. I need, you know, like what happened? They go, oh, that, that was a framer we used to use. But we're not using them anymore. So, you know, the framer we used to use, but I'll oversee everything from here on out. Hope we can stay in touch. No, sorry. No, here's what happened. No, here, what can we do to make this right? It was just blame it on the framer. Hope we can stay in touch. So um, pick up the phone, called my lawyer. We have a lawsuit against them currently. And uh, because they refused to acknowledge the, um, the lawsuit, I started doing an online push and trying to get the word out as much as I can about how they treat artists, how they treat the work that's entrusted to them and their general business practices. And that's one of the many paths that led me back here to this podcast today. Well, first of all, uh, Logan, we're sorry that you're going through this. This is, you know, uh, such an avoidable thing, right? I mean, this didn't have yeah. to happen. You didn't have to be in this situation. No, I think, you know, and I think most artists are understanding that, look, shit happens sometimes. And right. I think when, when any mistake happens that's not intentional, the first thing that you start off with is, I'm sorry, what can we do? But I got neither of those. Well, and, you know, as I was listening to the story, you know, it happened once. You were willing to kind of, you know, you understand shit happens. You're willing to forgive it. It's like, okay, one time, fine. But it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a, becoming a chronic kind of issue. And the fact that there doesn't seem to be much remorse or accepting responsibility, it's just making a bad situation worse. It, it's kind of absurd. I mean... I'm not overly OCD about stuff. Like I do understand that things happen. Occasionally you get something back with a nick or a ding. 
but you know, I started tallying up how much work they had sold them on versus how much work they destroyed. And uh, what it comes down to is I paid them to hold artwork of mine for a couple of years. They end up walking away with more money of mine than I do of theirs. And on any relationship, you should be walking away with the 50, 50, at least. I, I don't understand the, um, the ego that comes in to think that you can destroy not one, not two, not three, but six pieces of work and just be like, oh, yeah, that wasn't us, man. And that's it. So, you know, a couple of the steps that, I, that I've started taking is uh, one, you know, because they blocked me on social media because they don't want to talk to me. I had uh, asked for help for people that follow me on Instagram or on Facebook and just said, uh, hey, post on post on their account. Ask them, why did they destroy my work? Why won't they pay me for the work they destroyed? And uh, as of yesterday, they've shut down all the comments on their Facebook or on their uh, Instagram. Still not answering anyone, but I've had people tweet at them. I've had people call them. I've had people email them. And uh, I just want to make sure that my presence is felt every day, every hour until I'm made whole for uh, the work that was destroyed. By the way, um, that's that's the power, you know, power to the people and all that. I mean, it, and that's the power of social media, right? To be able to hold people accountable. You have so many fans and collectors and people that follow you. And the fact that they're rallying around you, circling the wagon, so to speak, that's the, the power, I guess, of the social media age we're living in, which is a good thing uh, in all of this. But, I mean, you... Logan, I mean, you and I have known each other a few years. We go back. I mean, you've been an artist for decades now. I guess from the outside looking in, a lot of people might think, like, how could this happen to Logan Hicks? <laughs> you know, like, if it can happen to him, it can happen to me. Looking back on on this, and we'll get back to the first horror story. You told us two horror stories. Um, we'll get back to the first one, but we're focused on the second one. I mean, looking back on how how you got here, how the what might you have done differently? What could you have done differently, if anything, to have avoided this from happening in the first place? Well, you know, I've, I've tightened up my business practice quite a bit since I first started working with them. I mean, every artist has their own way of, of approaching things. For me, I tend to have a good following both in the U.S. and in Europe. So I've had pretty successful shows in Australia, um, Paris, London. And so so for me, I'm always trying to test out new markets. And so when, when the opportunity came to, to work with Station 16, it was a relatively untapped market for me. And, you know, I saw as a way of kind of dipping my toes in and sort of testing the market to see if there's something there. And so I didn't have high expectations. For me, like I have three main galleries that I work with. That's my primary source of income. After that, then come projects and murals. And then third are these sort of ancillary galleries like Station 16 that, you know, if they bring in a couple hundred bucks a year and it introduces my name to someone, then it's worth it for me as long as I'm not losing money. And so th that's kind of what I started doing with, with Station. And, and they, they would sell on a piece here or there wasn't until I got the work back and then realized, like, oh, they're not taking care of the work. The one warning sign that, that I had that I should have listened to better was at one point, this artist duo goes by the name of 123 Clan had posted on Facebook about how Station 16 destroyed a bunch of their work and they weren't paying for it. And that post kind of got taken down about a week or two after that. In hindsight, I'm sure that Seeing how Station 16 is working with me and seeing how they're trying to squash my voice 
I'm pretty sure that they got to them and had them take down the post and say, oh, we'll probably work with you or whatever else. I, I don't know for a fact, but I, I should have listened to that and I, I should have scrutinized things a bit more. I thought after I discovered the first piece that was destroyed, that having a signed consignment form that clearly spelt out exactly what's expected, when who pays for this, who when the work comes back, what the, the length of the contract's for, how the work's returned, blah, blah, blah. A contract's only as good as the lawyer that you can hire to enforce it. I mean, and so in a sense, I mean, the, the consignment agreement, even though it is a legally binding thing, is more of a guideline unless you're willing to go to court and uh, enforce it. And, and I've been fortunate in the fact that I've been working with KG Law and they are amazing um, simply because they actually want to do the right things, not just collect the check. You know, he, he, he is my, my attorney, uh, Ilya and, and Andrew. They've done a great job for advising me on what's possible, what it should be, what's possible, and what the suggestion is of, of where we go on things. But um, in hindsight, I should have listened when the first time they damaged work. I should have contacted those artists and said, hey, what's going on? I'm working with them. What would you advise? And, uh, you know, I didn't. I, I, I won. You know, it's like Vegas. Everyone thinks they can beat the odds. <laughs> yeah well and it's not you know it's not going to happen to me right like like yeah, or, exactly. or you know it's like yeah right yeah no i i get that listen i mean in a perfect world right we could trust you know i'm reminded of that old uh, saying you know as as horrible of a president as he was you know ronald reagan talking about trust but verify i mean you know i guess in a perfect world right, it would be great you know to be able to go visit the gallery right that you as an artist you know they're going to represent your work see see how they're working, see how they handle the art, see how to basically do a site visit, right? Like to understand, you know, like in a perfect world, that'd be great. But of course, artists, you know, they, can be, they, they can't, you know, they're busy. Maybe it's, 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 it's expensive to go somewhere, whatever. You know, it'd be interesting, right, to do a site visit. Have you been to that gallery? Do you, have you ever seen how they handle the artwork in the back of the house and, and, and what their operation no, looks I haven't. like? I, you know, the one of the... One of the great joys that I've had since I posted stuff is that I've been getting messages and emails from dozens of people that they have fucked over. People that have been associated with them in a business capacity, artists that have shown with them, people that are friends with them, and just being like, yeah, like the, you know, one person said they had kind of had like an art storage area that they called um, where the art goes to die. And that's oh basically God. where it's like. <laughs> basically like a fuck you closet where like, we're not going to sell your shit, but we're not going to pay to send it back either. Again, this is a, a story that I, the, I relayed to me. So it's not something I've ver verified firsthand, but um, it would be in line with the, the ethos that they seem to have with dealing with artists. One other warning sign that they, that they had that I neglected to mention was, you know, they, they were taking my work to uh, different art fairs. And I think it was at scope a couple years ago, they showed me and they sold a piece and I got it back and the numbers weren't right. I go, no, I should have been getting get paid this much. They go, oh, well, because we took it to an art fair, we take the higher percentage. And I go, no, nah, you're never going to take more than 50% of my work. Well, that's how it is with ours. They go, well, then don't take me to an art fair, but I need my 50%. And uh, they never took me to an art fair again, which is fine. I mean, I'd rather have the money or the art, but not uh, take a loss. In hindsight, that, that was just kind of the entitlement that that gallery feels like, like they were owed. Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating to me how how these things happen after the fact. Like, like if you're a true professional, right? If you're, you know, a true professional, 
in theory anyway, is a good communicator, right? Like you talk about these things ahead of time. You don't assume or, or after the fact, it's like, oh, well, this, I know our deal was 50-50, but I took you to the art fair for now. So now it's 60-40. No, no, no. You never told me that. We never agreed to that. We never discussed that. That was never disclosed. And, and, I, and I think also, you know, like a, I'm an eternal optimist. In spite of my gruff exterior, I'm actually an eternal <laughs> optimist. So, you know, I, I always feel like I can, like I can fix this. We, we, we can make this happen. We can, we, you know, we can turn this around. And so every problem that comes up, I, I think of solutions. But, you know, the, the thing that I didn't didn't realize is that the problem is the gallery itself. It's not what's happening at the gallery. The problem is the gallery. And so, you know, there's no way to fix that. And if, if there's not a mutual respect that exists between two people when doing business, one person's going to get screwed. And that's what happened to me. You know, one of the things I've, I've been getting quite a few messages, too, with like, you know, like, fuck galleries. And I love galleries. I just don't like bad galleries. My gallery in New York, Tagliatella, fucking love them. They sell stuff. They communicate with me frequently. They pay on time. You know, we have a, a relationship that, that's friendship as well as business. It's exactly what I've always wanted in terms of working with the gallery. It's, it's kind of like any, any relationship. Like when you're in a bad relationship, you don't realize how bad it is until you get out of it and get into a healthy one. And as I start realizing just the approach that, that Station 16 had with me, I'm starting to realize how... Um, how kind of toxic that was. I mean, they're in Canada. I've heard of them paying artists in the U.S. and going, oh, no, we can't we can't pay you in uh, U.S. dollars. It has to be in Canadian, which I mean, because of the, the you know, the percentages or whatever, you end up yeah. losing money. And I'm like, right. that's bullshit. That's absolute <laughs> bullshit. We live in we live in an age where you can send a billion dollars like, you know, in a half a second in like a hundred different currencies. You mean to tell me you can't figure out how to convert Canadian to U.S.? Well, and but this also falls into that category of like that should be disclosed before the relationship ever starts. It's like we pay you, we pay you in Canadian dollars, not American dollars. Well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, it is fascinating, and you know, it's um the ounce of prevention, you know, all that stuff. That's why we wanted to do this, you know, art world horror stories kind of series because um, hopefully. Other artists hearing these stories, they'll learn and be able to avoid similar problems in the future to be able to mitigate any risk that they might enter into. And here you are, Logan Hicks, after decades of experience. Um, and if it can happen to you, it can happen to, to anyone. You know, and if, if artists listening right now, I hope they're understanding that the, the lesson, one of the lessons in all of this is to clarify terms as, as to the extent that you can clarify all the terms before you even begin working together because it's these kinds of gotcha moments that really serve to sour that business relationship and it's not ethical you know it's avoidable if you can communicate right and i also think that it's important to, to realize that like if you're not going to have a contract at least have an email i mean that, that's yeah I, act, exactly. I I'm 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 very opposed to telephone conversation. Like for example, when in hindsight, when when that first piece of work got damaged, and I sent them an email, here's what happened, documenting it, time when I got it, everything else to want them to know that I, you know, I, I inspected it less than like two hours preceding it. Sent them an email, and the first thing they did was, uh, you know, can we have a can we have a phone call tomorrow? And so 
right off the bat, because they never call me, I'm like, that's odd. This is a pretty simple thing. If they fucked it up, just go, oh, we'll pay for it. We don't pay for it. We'll make an insurance claim, tough shit, like, you know, something. And so when they were, they were like, you know, let, let's jump on a call tomorrow. I said, okay. And I recorded it. So w- when I talk with the gallery about anything substantial, I have them on speakerphone and I record the conversation on my computer so that like I can go back and reference it. And that's exactly what I did with this. And so when they tried to say like, you know, we, we never, we never said that we were responsible. I'm like, no, actually you are. I have you on the phone call saying like, I didn't realize we did that. You know, so and the, there, there's a bunch of things that artists can do that are real simple. You know, it's like one additional step, but it's simple things that you can do just to kind of protect yourself because with the contracts, it's not going to stop someone from screwing you, but it is going to strengthen your resolve and make you not doubt whether or not you need to go after them. Because I think that, that there's a lot of gaslighting that happens with galleries, well, in, any business. I can't even single out galleries. When you're dealing with someone, there's a lot of gaslighting with like, oh, no, I didn't say that. Oh, no, you misunderstood, you know, and, and shit like that. And you go, oh, maybe, maybe I did misunderstand. I don't know. I mean, it's a long time ago. Maybe I just forgot. But having a video, having a, a email, having a contract, you can look at it and you go, no, this is exactly what was said. And and for me, like, that gives me the strength to push forward and go like, no, I got it. I'm going to need my money by Monday. Well, and, and this is just, you know, an idea that's coming to my mind now, and I don't know if it has any merit or not, but it's um, it, it strikes me that if an artist is sending a piece of art to a gallery, perhaps you might also want to take photos of it in the state that you sent it, right? So, you know, here here is the painting, here is the scope. No, no, not even that. I, not even that. I video myself. Yeah. So Wait, that, video. That was- Perfect. Yep. If you and see the reason this came about is I actually have a friend who she received work back from San Fran, a San Francisco gallery and she unboxed it and she was like, there's only four pieces here. I sent you five. And they're like, no, like, you know, the, you must have misplaced it. Someone could have come into your, you know, your gallery or your studio and stole it, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, oh, wait, I have studio cameras. And she went back and reviewed, and it shows her pulling out four individual pieces of work and not a fifth one. And she sent it to them, and they go, all right, we'll make an insurance claim. And and it was a real cut and simple um, conversation ever since then. So, for example, with with the work that was damaged from Station 16, the, the letter from their lawyer says, any damage that happened, happened in transit, and we suggest you contact the shipping company. Well... I have a video of me unboxing the crate. I set up a camera. I have me unscrewing the box, pulling everything out, showing that there's nothing broken, nothing damaged, nothing, anything else. And um, so I have that. So if, if our lawsuit goes to, to court, it's an indisputable way of showing that, no, it didn't happen in transit. And I'm not going to contact the shipping company. I'm contacting the people that damaged it, which is Station 16. It's only paranoid if there's not a reason for it, right? So like... So I, I, I record everything. I video everything because you know what? Why not? I mean, get a fucking eight terabyte drive and just throw that shit on it. And if you need it in six years, you got it. If not, then, you know, you got a bunch of weird memories. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. There might be an art project in that somehow, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, you know, in, in, in your particular case, I mean, the damage in question is gaff tape on the paper. Like the yeah. shipping company is going to put gaff tape on the paper. How ridiculous is that? that that's why it was so absurd. I mean, like, and like the, the, the two pieces that had the indent on them, they were in a sleeve with with a foam core backing. And it's like only the paper was damaged, not the plastic, not the foam core. So it's like the odds of them having identical marks and somehow it miss, missing the, the foam core. But they just don't give a shit. I mean, that's the thing. It's like you can't have a conversation with someone that doesn't want to talk to you. They just didn't give a shit. They were saying whatever they thought they needed to say to make me go away. I don't know who their lawyer is, but but I do know that when, when they originally sent me back the response, it had misspellings in it. I'm like, man, when you're paying for an attorney that can't even spell shit, something's up. In, in the letter, it said, we're going to fight any and all claims. And it said uh, it was spelled out Andy and all. And so because one of my attorneys is named Andrew, he was like, I fucking hate when people call me Andy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Logan, though, in their defense, in their defense, though, and I don't mean to defend them, but I'm just saying as French Canadians, English isn't their first language. So I'm just, you know, like may, maybe there's a, um, an issue totally. there. <laughs> totally. But when you're paying for it, you're paying for words. Yes, That's why yes, you get yes. someone else to prove it. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, Logan, again, I mean, you, you mentioned this earlier and, and it's, it's also one of the reasons why I respect you so much because, you know, you are actually, as I've said in the past, you're one of the nicest people in the game. From the day I met you, you're always just, you know, so friendly and nice and positive. And you're right. I mean, in spite and of handsome. your rough you exterior handsome. and handsome and handsome, exactly. you sexy beast. <laughs> <laughs> and so, 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 so yes, optimism, positivity, glass half full. You know, we've spent 20 minutes or so here talking about this current art world horror story that you're going through with this bad gallery, right? But let's spend a few minutes just shouting out to the good galleries that you have worked with because, you know, here at On the Podcast, you know, we try to err on the side of positivity and optimism as well. And so, you know, like, let's talk a little bit about what artists should look like, look for in a good gallery. What what attributes do good galleries personify? You know, it's funny. I was actually just uh, before I called you, I was actually working on a post that I'm going to do basically with that exact thing. I mean, I, I hate being the guy that bitches. Like I said, I'm an internal optimist. I don't like to focus on the negativity. So what I've been trying to do is to, to focus on the positive and and. And, and the way I kind of balance that is like giving artists that, that are coming up behind me, like advice or clues or suggestions on how they can avoid it. But then also like giving a shout out to, to the galleries that, that are good. I mean, the, the people that I've worked with over the years that I, I couldn't think of anything bad to say about Tagliatella Gallery, love those guys. Never had an issue with them that we couldn't solve. I mean, we had one or two little things where I mentioned something, it was fixed immediately and it was done. And all with a smile and a handshake and, and no weirdness. I just started recently working with Mazelle Gallery, which is in Brussels. And um, same thing. I mean, email them, say, what about this? They email back. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. But everything's on the up and up and we just keep it moving. You know, the, the first time I ever worked with someone and, was tr and, and, I, and I thought to myself, this is how I want to be treated, is when I worked with the Goldmans down at uh, Wynwood Walls. 
I worked for Tony Goldman. I did a mural back in 2010. And um, he was like, whatever you need. Anytime I mentioned, like, oh, I wish I had this, you know, I'll get it for you. And they took care of me. It's the way it should be. And ever since then, I was like, you know, that's how artists should be treated, like with respect, with an understanding, with like this acknowledgement that this is a partnership and I have something that you don't have and you have something that I don't have. And we're merging forces to make ourselves stronger. Also, a uh, Think Space Gallery there in L.A. I mean, although I don't show with them, you know, I really appreciate the way Andrew is direct with everything. Um, I actually shared a space with them for a while before I moved to New York. You know, he's someone that I've always appreciated. Is uh, he's an extremely aggressive person in terms of promoting the art that that he shows and getting his artists out there and and selling and everything else. So he's another one that that I really appreciate. You know, I started trying to make a list of what's a, a quote unquote good gallery and a bad gallery, and th- there's a few warning signs now that I, I won't say that I drop drop them immediately, but I certainly take notice like when when a gallery doesn't doesn't respond back to you if you're working with them and you email them and a week goes by and you don't hear from them that's an issue if it's something urgent and a couple of days go by that's an issue if there's if there's always an issue with payment and and every bad gallery that I've worked with this has been a thing. oh we don't have your address oh we need your social all oh, the transfer didn't go through oh you know we're going to get you know we'll have this go out next week like the galleries that I work with now, there has never once been an issue with payment. Not one. They go, hey, we sold this. They sent it over. Check cleared. All good. And so anytime that, that there's an ongoing issue for payments, that's a big uh, warning flag for me. If a gallery only wants you to, to produce the same thing over and over again, and they don't encourage you to grow, then it's more like a factory than it is a gallery. I mean, a gallery should be interested in your career just as much as your artwork. And that means not just selling the artwork that's on the wall, but it means trying to get you press, trying to get you projects, trying to get, get you into collections that, that are important or museums or things that will further you and kind of up your stock in the art world. And I think that, you know, when you're starting off, I mean, shit, when I, when I had my first show, it was in like a coffee shop and I was over the moon that I had stuff in a coffee shop and it was awesome. As you kind of grow, it's like, well, then you want to be in a real gallery and then you want to sell work and then you want to make money off of it. Then you want to make a living off of the work. And after you get to the point where you're making a living off of your artwork, then you need to start focusing on like the, the, the big prize. And that's getting in museums, getting press, getting in collections and finding stability, finding collectors that aren't going to turn around and sell your shit the second that, you know, it's worth a dollar more than they bought it for. But so, so yeah, that's my little spiel. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, one of the things that sort of jumps out at me about what you just said is that the bar isn't that high. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? I mean? Like, you know, com- good communication, simple. paying on time, being human, being respectful, having some integrity. Like, <laughs> this should be pretty basic stuff. Sell it to them, pay me for it, talk to me about it. That's it. <laughs> exactly. That's that's a good infographic, like the yeah. secret to art gallery success, you know, like, yeah. like that's it. Yeah. And yeah, like, like, like with Dr. Tell, I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll talk to him like, Hey, I got this idea. What about doing this thing? What about doing that thing? And they'll be like, yeah, you know, don't think that that's really gonna, that's not really what our collectors are looking for, but you know, what about something like this? And, you know, I think that one of the things that artists need to remember is that like art is anything that you create in your studio. The second your artwork leaves the studio door, it then enters the business world. And so there's not really room for emotion. 
you need to be strategic, you need to be focused, you need to be precise, and you need to be persistent. And so there's no like what I feel or, you know, this or that, you know, like in, in the studio, you can do all that stuff. In the studio, you can make as much work as you want. And no one's telling you what to, what to make, what you choose to show, what, how you curate the work that goes on the wall. That's where it starts entering into business. And so in, instead of artists thinking of like, this gallery takes care of me, you need to think of, of it as I'm entering into a partnership with a gallery and together we're going to build something. They have the walls. I have the art. Let's make this happen. And, and you need to realize that no one owes you anything, you know, other than the check for the work that clears. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you've hit on so many important things. I mean, as soon as an artist decides to make a living with their work and they want to support themselves with their work, then they, they have made the decision to be in business. And you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, you don't even have to guess at it. There's all kinds of good books. <laughs> There's all kinds of good tutorials. All, you know, if you don't know business, you can learn it. But that's the game that you've decided to play in. Yeah. And I mean, just talk to other artists. I mean, that, yeah. I mean, in hindsight, that, that was the mistake that I made with Station 16. I didn't talk to 123Clan. When I saw that post, I should have I messaged them directly and been like, what happened? And gotten it from them, and then I then I would have right. been, been informed, you know, straight from the. We need a, you know what, you know what, you know what, Logan, we need a Yelp for galleries. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if artists could could comment and rate galleries based on their experience, then you would you would be able to know. As long as you had trustworthy artists, I mean, the fact is, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot too. of shady galleries, but there are an equal number of shady, terrible <laughs> artists. It is true. I mean, it is true. So you've been, you know, you, you're a busy guy. I want to be respectful of your time. I'm so grateful that we were able to do this. Uh, I mean, it's uh, going on nine o'clock New York time. I'm out here in Cali on the on the left coast and you're on the on the east coast, which, by the way, you're not swimming, are you? How the how the hell are you doing with the with the water and the flooding? No, I, you know, I, I lost a lot of stuff in my uh, my storage unit, but nothing that was important. It, it was pissing down like crazy. I mean, it was coming up on the fire hydrant and I it's like, you know, of course, anytime there's a weird weather incident, I'm like, this is a great time to take pictures. So I'd open my, <laughs> yes, it is. I'd, I'd open my window and was shooting with like a telephoto lens because there was like, you know, delivery drivers that were still delivering food in the monsoon. And um, right. I was like, oh, wait, I forgot it's flooded in the basement before. And so I went down there and I managed to get everything out because I had a good portion of my art collection there. You know, I had about. I think I have probably about 60 or 70 Shepherd Fairy prints from like the mid 90s. And uh, I, I opened my, my storage locker right at the same time water started dripping out of the ceiling. So I made a sprint up two flights of stairs with crates. And uh, so, I mean, oh you, know, you can't see it behind me, like all, all these trash bags and crates or all the art that was in the storage unit. So I'm going to find a new storage unit. Man, oh man! Well, you know, thank, thank, thank the, thank the art gods for looking out for you on that one. That you were able to save yeah. the, save the, save that work. Yeah. So, but, but I mean, I, I, I escaped relatively unscathed. I mean, the, there's a lot oh, of people good. that took serious damage. I mean, I was yeah. reading about the, a lot of these uh, illegally converted basement apartments. You know, twelve people died. Yeah, it's, it's horrific, absolutely horrific, and our hearts go out to them. And so, yeah. So I was um, definitely wanted to 
shout out to you about that. Make sure that you knew that we were we were thinking about you and make sure you're safe in that regard. I mean, climate change is real, and these sure. are examples it's of, be the of, first of, of how many. real it is. But uh, so, uh, not to go from one horror story to another horror story to another horror story, but you started, you had two horror stories to share with us. You started with the story with the restaurateur, the steak, a Mongol who um, apparently has decided that he paid you once and he can use your artwork multiple times, no matter what, across all kinds of platforms or media or channels or whatever. Like, what the hell, man? What uh, you, what happened there and, and, and what can we do to avoid mistakes like that in the future? Well, you know, the, the this is the, the this is a more complicated one simply because like we did everything right. We had a contract with big huge paragraphs and passages and big fancy words and everything else saying that they couldn't use it for this that and the other thing and they still did. And, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. If someone wants to fuck you, they're going to fuck you. So the first defense line is having a having a contract and a firm understanding. The second defense line is having a good attorney. And I'm lucky in the fact that like KG Law like I've been working with them for a number of years. They've represented me on a number of different copyright infringement cases. So I, I called up Andrew and Ilya on, on this and let them do what they're best at. And so primarily it's been lawyers going back and forth. And, and what lawyers will, will normally do is if you make a, a claim against them, they know that every time you have to talk to your lawyer, you got to pay your lawyer. And so They'll, they'll try to keep the communication going as long as possible because your lawyer is going to bill by the hour. So if your lawyer spends five minutes writing an email to, to them, well, they're going to charge you the whatever, 150 250 350 an hour. They usually assume their artist will go away after a while. With this, I mean, it's not finished by any stretch, but it couldn't be more clear that we're absolutely in the right. It's just a question of how many hoops we need to jump through before we actually get compensated on a level that, that is uh, equal to the infringement that they had. Last I heard, the lawyers are still kind of going back and forth and uh, talking about numbers or whatever else, but I, I really don't know anything beyond that. But that, So I would say that to answer your question, what we can do about it, if you're an artist, make sure you find a good attorney and find one before you need one. At this point, there's been enough... I don't know, I think if you're an artist, you can't just be content with just making the artwork. You need to be in love with making the artwork, presenting the artwork, selling the artwork, and everything that comes along with that. And that includes protecting the artwork. And so if you see like an article on a paper about, you know, some lawsuit with some infringement or whatever else, see who the attorney is. If it doesn't say, call up the artist, ask who the attorney is. You may not ever need it. But keep a list of resources, keep a list of accountants, keep a list of attorneys, keep a list of frame makers, of delivery services. These are all things that it's all the small things that really get you over the finish line. Because I mean, any asshole with a canvas and a tube of paint can paint something. But at that point, it's a hobby. If you want to make it into a business, you need all the other stuff like the attorneys and accountants to, to really get you over the finish line. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, right? Because on a certain level... I mean, if artists, you know, really care about their about their artwork, the analogy that comes to mind is the uh, parental uh, kind of analogy where parents have kids, they care for their kids, they raise their kids, they protect their kids. They, if they're a good parent, like this is what you do, right? Because these are your babies. 
you know, if, if an artist makes art, that's your baby, right? Yeah. You, you know, you be a responsible artist, be a responsible parent of that artwork of that baby that you made, raise it up, protect it, make sure you're managing it and, and looking after it in a way that makes sure that it doesn't get hurt or destroyed or that you don't get, you know, hurt or destroyed in the process. And it is, you know, it's, it's an interesting situation because you, you, you know, you, you, you hit, you hit on it earlier. I mean, a lot of times artists just, you know, they want to make the work, but they don't want to think about all of the responsibility that comes after the work is done. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I think a simpler analogy is it's like having a dog. Dogs are fun and they're awesome, but sometimes you got to clean up some shit. You know, and, and the, the, the reason I kind of wised up to some of this is a very good friend of mine and, and a mentor, an artist named Mia Ando. One time I was I had a had a gallery that, that did a few things that I wasn't happy with and I was complaining to her about like, well, I thought we were friends and this and that. And and jokingly, she was like, I'm getting annoyed. She goes, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you a contract tomorrow. After I send you that contract, we're never going to have a conversation like this again. And the reason we're not going to have this conversation again is because you're never going to let a piece of artwork leave your studio unless you have a signed consignment form. So that there's a firm understanding and no misunderstandings between you and the gallery. Because everything you've told me, could have been solved with the consignment form, a simple one-page consignment form. And I was like, you're right. And so, you know, our, our motto kind of became like, no more unpleasant conversations. And truth is, I, you know, I, I don't see her that often. And we had wasted half of the time I saw her, me complaining about something that was my own stupid fault for not having a tight business practice. And so, you know, now that that's what I do. I try to think ahead. Yeah. And, you know, and it cuts both ways, too, because, yes, of course, artists have to accept responsibility for their business and their arts business and managing their art, you know, in a professional, legally responsible way. But, of course, uh, and that's on the supply side, right? I mean, on the demand side, clients, collectors, patrons, what have you. I mean, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of ignorance. And I can't speak to necessarily this particular situation with this stake mogul that you're talking about. But the but but I but I have heard stories in the past where, you know, people feel like, well I bought the artwork, so I own the rights and I can make T shirts and I can make packaging and I can do this and I can do that. And no you can't. <laughs> you know what I mean? That yeah, and, and you know in the past I've but I think pe people that are fucking up want to throw out those those excuses, and they know. I mean, look, if you're a business, if you don't know, it's your job to know. You know sure. what I mean? It's like, so I used to try to educate people like, no, actually, here's what a copyright is, and here's what it's, and you know what? That's not my fucking job. My job's to make the art. I'll send you a link, and you can read about that shit yourself, but it's not my job sure. to try to convince you. Only one I need to convince is the court. And so... If you are a professional and you take your career serious, it is your job to know these things. And if you don't know, you ask questions or you hire someone that does know. And so, you know, people, well, I, I thought like, well, you thought wrong, you know, and I mean, uh, you can think whatever you want, but you thought wrong. Also, like a, a quick side note that I'll say to any artists that are painting murals, copyright your murals. So w one of the many things that... uh Ilya has kind of clued me in on is when you're an artist, if you paint a mural, yes, you have the copyright on that mural. And if some big brand comes and does a photo shoot in front of your mural, you can sue them, but you would be getting the same amount as you would get if you licensed your mural. 
which, you know, somewhere between 1500, 3500. I mean, it's a pretty standard kind of, kind of fee for that. But if you copyright your mural and you register it with the copyright office, which only costs $35, your damages start at $30,000. So, Fifteen hundred versus thirty thousand is a huge difference. And if they exclude your signature on the photo shoot, that's additional damages on top of it. And so that's kind of what I mean about having a tight business practice. Like painting the mural is 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 the first step. Registering that shit, getting good documentation, and and uh, you know presenting it to the world is the second step. Well, and and making uh, and I think Ilya, who you know, shout out Ilya. I mean, what a what a what an awesome dude he is. I mean, you know, we, we I've had the opportunity to chat with him in the past, and he was he he did, he, he honored us with his presence at our conference a couple of years ago. And I mean, one of the things that he talked about was making the copyright part of your art practice. So you've made the art. Right. You, you've finished the piece. Well, then creating the copyright, registering the artwork, you know, in the copyright office should be part of your arts practice, because then that gives you the legal coverage that you need in these situations. Yeah, I just try, I, I try to have a workflow for everything that I do. I mean, the same way that if if you're making work for a gallery, you, you finish the work, then you package the work, then you create the work, then you deliver, you know, like you don't really think about it. There's a workflow that goes to it. And so. When, when you start assigning that same kind of methodology to doing a mural and, and you know what you need to do, like, all right, well, I'm done with the mural. Now copyright it, do this, that, and the other thing. And it just saves you, you know, again, no more unpleasant conversations. You don't need to then chase someone down. You can go, here's the copyright on it. You owe me money. Either let's talk about what you owe me or I can just lawyer up and we can deal with it that way. But either way, I need my money. Well, no, nobody likes to find themselves in, a, in the middle of a horror movie. Nobody likes to find themselves in the middle of a scary, life-threatening, white-knuckled, uh, heart-racing situation. And, you know, artists don't necessarily have to find themselves in the middle of an art world horror story. If they can listen to what we're talking about, if they can use their brain, if they can mitigate uh, some of these issues with best business practices by finding lawyers before they need them, by registering their copyright, by using their their brains and, and getting consignment agreements and, and, and communicating with galleries, avoiding the bad galleries, doing some research, talking to artists, making sure that they're setting themselves up for success so they can mitigate uh, the dangers that the art world might bring them and not find themselves in the middle of an art world horror story. And I'll tell you what, Logan Hicks, I'm so grateful, man, for you taking time uh, today to share your art world horror stories with us so that young artists and old artists listening today can avoid these problems uh, in their own practice. Thank you, my friend, for being with us today. Thank you much. Um, learn from my mistakes. And one last thing I'll say to the artists that, that are listening. I mean, recognize that you're part of a community. Even if you're that same introvert like me who spends 90% of his time in the studio, we're all part of the same community. And um, no artist wants to see another artist get screwed over. And no artist wants to see bad galleries get ahead. So talk to each other. Got a question? Ask someone. The, the, the saying, uh, rising tide floats all boats applies to careers too. And so if I do better... You know, that means that I should make sure that you do better also. And so uh, we're all part of a, the same community and we all have the same goals. So that's a great it. way of ending this, Logan Hicks. You are a, a source of positivity and optimism and a sexy animal at that. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> Thank you much for having me. I appreciate it, Scott. Take care, man. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review 
and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld.